0: Welcome to another edition of Turn Out A Punk. I'm your host, Damien Abraham, and once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved in punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, it's a big one. It's a huge one. Reconnecting with my buddy, Butch Vig. You may know him as a member of the band Garbage. You may know him as a member of the band Spooner. You may also know him as a producer of... A lot of big records. A lot of classic, classic records. And we talk about a lot of them. More on that in one second. But first, if you want to get in touch with me, head over to the email address, turned out a punk podcast at gmail.com. That is run by my brother and show producer and guest. Booker extraordinaire. Actually, though, this one was gotten by Brian Schwartz. So thank you very much, Brian, for getting this guest on the show today. Uh, but Tristan will get the message to me. And if you want to get in touch with me more directly, you can find me at Leftford Damien damian on various forms of social media. There's also social media accounts for Turned Out of Punk on Facebook and Instagram. Both of those are Turned Out of Punk on those respective platforms. If you want to support the show, the best way to support the show is just by telling all your friends, letting everyone know uh, that you know that you enjoy this podcast right here, that we do uh, sometimes multiple times a week, but I think this time it's going to be once a week. But, but you know, you tell me you like this podcast. The other way to support this show is by writing a review and uh, rating it on iTunes or on your podcast platform that you listen to this thing on. You can also uh, go over to patreon.com slash turnoutapunk and check out the Patreon page we do there where there's footnotes on there and, and tons of other fun stuff. So please... Check that out. And this thing would not be possible without the kind, loving support of the fine folks at Vans. Vans came aboard a few years ago and said, Damien, do your thing. Just don't do it in your own pocket. And uh, it's been great. You know, that's why I can have this podcast and just book whoever the heck uh, Tristan and I kind of feel like booking, you know, like, and that's what we do here. We just get, you know, all sorts of different guests. We've had, uh, you know, a range of different people. You know, we've done a few weeks in New York. We did five consecutive episodes in New York or with New York guests or New York-based guests. So this today we're going to the Midwest. Let's head over to the Midwest, and the Midwest is all right, in the words of the Gizmos. Uh, and we're going to be talking today about Butch Vig. Butch Vig is someone that uh, well, I've been a fan of. Since I kind of became aware of punk music, I guess, because he produced uh, a lot of big records for me, you know, and and we talk about him. So I'm not going to bore you with that again. But I will kind of bring you up to speed because I don't really go into it with Butch. But years ago, my brother, I think Simon Ennis, and I'm trying to remember who else was with us. uh, Josh Kirschenblatt. Yeah, they're they're a a group of us. We went down to CFNY 102.1 The Edge, as it was known. And we went to see Garbage do an interview. And now Garbage had just kind of come out. Uh, They had the first two singles, I think, were out around this time. It was just the first single. So this is their first stop in Toronto. And we went down to see if we wanted to meet them. And I'm going to be honest with you, we were hugely into those first two Garbage singles, but also we were like, oh my gosh, this is like Butch Vig. He worked on all these records that we love, you know? So let's, let's go meet him and go down there. And we went down there and they were the coolest people I swear, I think I've ever met to this day. They were so nice to all of us and we were, we were punishers. There's there's no other way to say it. We went down there and we just started to just punish them and ask them about Sonic Youth and ask them about all sorts of things. And they were all super awesome. Like every single member of that band uh, was just so nice to us. And it really impacted me, you know, like I think, when I meet people, uh, that's, that's what I hope, uh, you know, if, if someone's excited to to meet me because I play in a band then I just hope I come across as cool as they came across to me way back when, you know? So I kind of want to have everyone uh, from that band on this show eventually, but Butch is the one that I kind of have, have stayed a little bit in touch with over the years and, you know, reached out and sure enough, here he is on the show today. Uh, this is, I'm not going to ramble on anymore. This is more than I normally try and talk on the beginning of these shows these days. So, um, but yeah, yeah. this is a fun one. This is a really cool conversation with, uh, someone that, uh, you know, had a big impact on my life, probably some of yours as well. So sit back, relax, and enjoy Butch Vig on Turned Out a Punk.
1: <laughs> Butch, thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, Damien, thanks for having me. I mean, uh, I'm just sitting here in my bedroom studio in L.A., and you gave me something to do for the next hour.
0: (laughs) Well, I can't thank you enough for it. And also, i got to thank you for many, many years ago. I think I've told you this before when we were on tour together, but I met you and and the rest of the garbage at at a radio show appearance here in Toronto, and you were so kind to my Punisher-ass friends and I and uh that i think really set me where i am today and and you know one of those few experiences that you have where you're like if i ever get into a band where i get fans i'm going to treat them like this and so i got to thank you for that
1: oh that's cool i mean uh you know i've i've been around musicians my whole life uh either as a musician or as an engineer producer and uh I feel a kinship towards anybody who has artistic tendencies, and uh, um, I feel like they're my brother in arms in some ways. So, uh, you know, I, I'm I'm I I like people. I like hanging out with people. I know some people are, you know, a little more socially inept, but uh, I, I love talking to musicians and artists and creative people in in general.
0: Well, we're gonna start. Uh, off where they all start off because we're going to get there soon i'm sure which is butch how did you get into punk do you remember the first time you ever came across the genre
1: well in madison uh around the time when all the punk scene started exploding in like new york and london and la and washington dc there was a small scene there and uh this was right around when steve and i started smart studios and um, the punk bands were more than willing to come in and record you know for uh uh, you know a a real if they brought in a reel of tape and some pizza and beer that was all we cared about you know we we didn't (laughs) even charge people when we first started recording um and it was exciting because uh everybody was playing shows in non-traditional places like the wilmar center and uh parks and basements of people's homes and there was a real sense of community and uh I also was friends with a couple DJs in uh, WORT which was like the sort of the NPR station in in Madison and uh, they were always getting imports, 7-inch imports from the underground you know and uh, so I got exposed to a lot of really early punk rock and I, and I just loved it I, I loved the the vibe and the sort of immediacy and and that the production levels were kind of crude and and I felt a kinship to that you know I think when I started out as a Musician, I would look at bands like Led Zeppelin and the Beatles as they were gods on pedestals, and they were untouchable. But then, when punk rock and new wave, when when that came out, I felt like I was part of that. You know, I was I was a drummer and playing in bands, and I felt like um, I had found my uh, my home team, sort of.
0: So, what was the scene like in Madison? Um, you know, when that first kind of wave of punk rock hits? Um, you know, around nineteen, I guess seventy-seven, seventy-six.
1: Uh, you know, I think that initially the the punk scene was uh, hard to find and probably didn't really uh, take off there in, until I want to say maybe a couple years after that in Madison. It, it is true the Midwest is sometimes lagging a little bit in the art curve. You know, if something pops out in New York or London, it takes a little bit longer for it to sort of find its legs in the Midwest. Mm-hmm. So it's probably mm-hmm. more like around. Seventy nine or eighty, when I started noticing uh, local punk bands in Madison.
0: And uh, what were th- what was kind of stuff were you into prior to that? You mentioned Beatles and Led Zeppelin.
1: Well, I grew up listening to classic rock. My mom was a, a music teacher, and she bought Beatles records as well as uh, Frank Sinatra records and the Tijuana Brass and things like that. So I was exposed to a lot of different kinds of music. Um, I personally was into like Black Sabbath and uh, Grand Funk Railroad, um, <laughs> you know, some of the lesser uh, classic rock acts, I guess you you would say now. Um, but it really was like I like I mentioned when I got into punk rock and, and new wave in particular, uh, you know, bands like. Um, the replacements in rem you know i i just fell in love with them and plus they would come through madison and play you know mm-hmm. there was a club in madison i think it probably opened in like 79 or 80 called merlins and i swear every up-and-coming british band came through there uh <laughs> everybody and and plus I, I saw rem there play to about six people i saw uh, u2 play there um, and all the, all the cool punk bands, uh, like Iggy Pop played three nights there. I remember that was like a, kind of a mind blowing experience. Um, but every night of the week, like five or six nights a week, they had, uh, showcases with, um, uh, you know, really cool acts. And I was there pretty much every damn night.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, it seems like Madison is just, you know, and especially later on when you're, you're recording bands, like such a hub for music. Like there's just so much stuff coming out there. Do you think it's because of the university or like, why is it? that kind of cultural center.
1: Yeah, the University of Wisconsin has about 50,000 students and every year you get a whole new influx of uh, whatever 10,000 freshmen and a lot of them start bands. Uh, there was always a, a pretty healthy club scene in Madison and every year you'd see uh, a, a couple dozen new bands that would join the circuit. And a lot of times they didn't last very long, you know, they would they would burn out after a year or two, but there was a constant change, and I think that was healthy because, uh, you know, for a small city, um, there was a lot of, of music going on.
0: So, was Spooner your first band, or did you do any bands prior to that?
1: Spooner was my first serious band, I guess. Uh, I played in a terrible band in high school, Damien. We were called Eclipse, and uh, okay. <laughs> we were pretty darn bad. Um, if you if you <laughs> watch the uh, Smart Studios documentary that uh, director Wendy Schneider did in our studio. There's a little bit of uh, sound from that, that band I had and some description of what it was like uh, when I started out there. But that's where I, where I got interested in recording um, when, when I was in, in uh, high school. Um, we would record the, or I would record the rehearsals on a two-track um, tape recorder in the basement of uh, our rehearsal space, and uh, I just got fascinated with it, you know, t- trying to balance the mics and and uh just get it to sound good and we were terrible by the way um our singer was a wrestler high school wrestler and he would he would go bare chested and like beat his chest like an ape man and uh we did deep purple <laughs> covers and uh, grand funk railroad covers and black sabbath covers and we thought we were badass but we we're actually really terrible <laughs> and
0: uh, uh but you're selling me on this band this band sounds
1: incredible <laughs> Yeah, yeah, there's only there's a snippet of one song you can hear it in the uh in the documentary, but we never we never released a uh, any vinyl or anything. We tried to um but there were so many obstacles back in the day, you know. I didn't know anything about recording or how to press records or how you distribute mm-hmm. them or anything like that. And it took took years, you know, of sort of just DIYing it until I finally figured all that out. But when I left Loyola, I went to UW Madison and uh I went into uh, film music and in, in com arts, and uh, that's where I met Steve, and that's where I met Duke, and uh, I, I uh, auditioned for uh, Duke was looking for a drummer, and, and I joined Spooner, and uh, we wanted to write our own music. You know, Duke was a fairly prolific songwriter at the time, and and uh, so I sort of took it upon myself to help facilitate uh, recording all the all the EPs and singles that we put out
0: did eclipse play with other bands or was it just more like you know just a high school battle the bands type band
1: eclipse played in uh in and around virocco wisconsin (laughs) that's where i'm from it's a small (laughs) norwegian farming community in the in the west western portion of uh wisconsin near the mississippi river we would play like the county fair we'd play the high school dance or a junior high dance uh there were a bunch of taverns um, outside of, uh, you know, outside of Roqua in the middle of nowhere, and the, the bartenders were always, or the bar owners were always really happy when we came there. We were like 16 years old, and we would drive, book a gig, and all of our friends would come, you know, there'd be 50 or 100 friends, and we were all underage drinking beer, you know. Plus, then we would drive home afterwards, you know, woohoo, let's go, <laughs> uh really totally irresponsible but those were different times you know um and it was really fun we we thought we were like i said the, the coolest band in the world and uh it was amazing to be able to go and do that to play these little honky-tonk bars in the, in the middle of nowhere you know county jj in the middle of the night and and have a bunch of our friends there rocking out it was it was really cool and really fun
0: I, yeah, I gotta hear this band. I can't wait to watch the documentary but uh for, for a lot of reasons, but certainly high on top of that list is finally hearing eclipse because you you've sold it to me. It sounds incredible.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, I I had a bunch of real to real recordings and um my mom passed away about uh I guess about ten years ago or so. And um I had they were they were in a box in my house in Viroqua, and uh, after my mom passed away, one day my dad just like cleaned house and threw a bunch of stuff out. <laughs> and I, di- I didn't find out till later. I was like, "Hey, where are all those old tapes?" And my dad said, like, "I just threw everything out." I'm like, "God damn it! I wanted to, oh. I wanted to find those old uh, two track tapes and bake them and see what they sounded like. That would have been fun."
0: Yeah. Well, at least we have that clip in the movie, so I, I will learn from that. Um, going back to spooner spooner's incredible like that from that first seven inch on like were was it informed by bands like the nerves at all or is it just like just like going for you know raspberry style power pop
1: oh I love the nerves I mean there was a whole scene around that time uh, particularly from California a lot of the power pop bands uh Mm-hmm. that uh, I fell in love with and Duke loved also. One of the bands that was uh, very influential on us and, uh, uh, w- you know, who helped us uh, was a band from Zion, Illinois called Shoes. And they were sort of lumped into that power pop um, category. They put out a, an amazing record, Damien, if you can find it. I think it's called Black Vinyl Shoes that they did on a four track with headphones. And they put it out, and then they got signed to, to uh, I think, got released on Bomp Records, which released a lot of Power Pop. And then uh, that led to them getting signed to Electra Records. So they, they uh, made, I think, three or four albums for Electra and uh, got very experienced in the studio. They were they were super studio gearheads. And uh, Gary Klebe, one of the members, sort of took me under his wing. Um, he, he co-produced and helped us make the first Spooner album, uh, Every Corner Dance. And gary was uh just really instrumental in nurturing me you know he knew he kept saying i can tell you're not just a drummer that you want to learn how to engineer and learn how to produce so you should pursue that don't put all your eggs in one basket you know and he really Mm -hmm. mentored me in some ways and um and uh so that was uh yeah spooner was like my sort of uh learning ground between the recording punk bands at Smart and then and Spooner, which were, I guess, in some ways, more crafted sounding records. That was my education in recording. You know, I never went to a proper school and I never learned under a, a studio system where you work your way up from the, the T-boy to the second engineer to the engineer, that kind of thing. I was just doing it by the seat of my pants. And uh, so uh, Spooner was one of the Um, the guinea pigs (laughs) for my production (laughs) techniques.
0: Uh, no, it's, it's, you know, I've gone back and listened to them. I've got, you know, the first seven inch and I've got uh, the, I think it's the third seven inch, but, um, yeah, I just think the band's amazing, you know, like what a great sound. And and it's that kind of American power pop sound that, you know, was, as you're saying, there's a scene for it at the time.
1: Yeah, and we, uh, it's funny, we noticed um, as soon as we put that first seven inch out, um, it kind of made us legit in the Madison scene, and we went from playing to 50 people for 50 bucks a night to 500 people, you know, and uh, and and we're able to start playing the big clubs in Madison and, and developed a pretty healthy following, and then that led to us being able to go to Chicago, Minneapolis, and Iowa City, you know, sort of do the Midwestern uh, touring circuit, and um it was great man. I mean we, the the hard thing was a lot of places that would book us uh expected cover songs. Mm-hmm. So we had to learn, you know, we had to learn a lot of cover songs. But, so we played stuff that we liked. Um like we play the Raspberries, we play uh oh Tom Petty songs. Um you know, things music that we we felt a kinship to, you know, we didn't necessarily play whatever was on top 40 radio. And then we would sneak in a lot, of our own, uh, a lot of our own songs. Sometimes Duke would say, here's a song by the Beatles, and we'd play one of our songs. <laughs> and people would be scratching their heads going, that doesn't sound like the Beatles. Uh, but it, it was great. And, uh, and, and like I said, we, we, we really wanted to record our own uh, material, and so we did, you know, between the singles, a couple singles, and an EP, and I think we did three records, three albums proper. I can't remember exactly. Um, but it was uh, it, it was really fun, and uh, I, I learned. If you listen to the very first EP all the way through the last record, uh, the quality gets better. You know, the sound quality is, is getting better because um, obviously I was learning um, how to engineer better and how to produce and mix better.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and it, it was a band that ran for a very long time, right? The last album comes out in ninety.
1: Yeah, we. Uh, I guess I want to say we started. Um, Around 1979 I can't even remember But we released uh, a bunch of Yeah, First a bunch single of singles and EPs And um, through the You know, through the 80s But we still played shows up until um, The early 90s I, In fact, I remember uh, We had booked a pretty big show uh, After I finished Nevermind and uh, But it had been on the books For like four or five months earlier And I And I looked at my window, my schedule Oh, I'm going to have some I'll have like a two or three week window off here and then the Nirvana mixing got pushed back. Um, I started mixing the record, and uh, uh, never mind. And, and none of us are really happy with the results because the band was in the studio with me mixing, and Kurt would come up to the board and go, turn all the treble off. I want it to sound like Black Sabbath, and, which is not what you want to do. Um, anyway, so we rescheduled uh, the mixing and brought in Andy Wallace, who just did an incredible job mixing. But during the mixing, I had to fly home on a Friday night, play a Spooner gig to, like, 5,000 people and then fly back on Sunday and go back in the studio and mix. So We were we active, you know, not not full-time, but we were still playing shows up through the early 90s.
0: Yeah, no, it's, it's and, and, like, as you say, like, you know, right through that last record, like, such a strong pop sensibility um, with that band, which I guess is, you know, also something that very much, you know, is something, you know, a hallmark of your, you know, Your production work is being able to kind of pull that out of bands.
1: Yeah, you know, I really would try to pull hooks out of noise, too. I mean, I think that's one of the reasons uh, uh, working with bands like Tar Babies or Killdozer or Die Kreutzen, um, you know, trying to keep their their edge and their craziness and the noise in their music, but also focus the hooks, I think that's why I got calls from uh, Billy Corgan, and I got a call from Sub Pop and Kurt Cobain because they were listening to those uh, indie records I was recording in Madison, and they they liked what they heard. So, um, uh, you know, I've um, I think Steve Albini accused me of trying to make uh, bands every band I would produce sound like the Beatles, <laughs> <laughs> and of course, every band I produced did not sound like the Beatles. But I was trying to pull the hooks out and and, and you know make things. Um, Catchy, hooky, even if it was Killdozer. You know, to me, there were hooks in Killdozer's music.
0: Well, yeah, definitely. And I think that Appliances record is super underrated, that SF Appliances F, SFB. Oh, record. man,
1: the Appliances were so good back in the day, Damien. They would just smoke people. They would smoke people. And they were sort of prog punk. Um, a great Scott was a great drummer, um, Bill on guitar, uh, Tom Laskin, the singer. Uh, they were... Uh, hard to pigeonhole, you know, because they were already in weird. They would go on these long jams. Um, they were kind of like para Ubu on speed sometimes, um, and uh, you know, they had a huge following in, in Mass and, and through the Midwest, but uh, never really caught on out of there. Like a lot of bands, the same with like De Kruytson. You know, you sort of get big in your in your area, but it's hard to sometimes to translate that to more of a national. Seen unless you get signed to a label and you get proper promotion and stuff but um yeah the appliances they were one of those bands that to me uh you couldn't pigeonhole and they were so exciting to see live
0: yeah like i I, I obviously never got a chance to see them live but uh those records hold up so much but that record in particular you know that obviously you've done tar babies and mech mench before that but like that record it's just like there's a sound to that album that you know i think is is Something that just cuts through, and that record just sounds like you know you're put once again like you're not making them sound like the Beatles, but you are pulling something out of them that just like it just sounds different than their other records did.
1: Yeah, and that was hard to record because um, they they were a five piece band, and they they would also do overdubs, and they had a lot of effects sometimes, and uh, that was done on an eight track. So I remember I had to record the drums, commit to the drum sound, and mix that to stereo and then the same with the bass i would take an amp sound and a di and blend those and put that so that took up three tracks and then um we would usually do a couple of guitar tracks and a couple of keyboard tracks and sometimes i'd have to bounce those down to leave uh, a couple tracks for vocals um i, I, I remember it was uh, it was tricky to 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 engineer that on uh, you know with limited tracks but uh it turned out really good and um like I said, they, they just had this power and energy that uh, was incredible. And um, if you, again, not, not to pitch it too much, but if you see the smart studio story, the appliances are in there quite a bit. In fact, the opening music, and also I think the music in the trailer is from the uh, appliances.
0: Oh, that's awesome. Would, would like Spooner have played with the appliances, or is it completely different worlds?
1: No, that was the cool thing about Madison is um, uh, Spooner would play with the appliances and Tar Babies and Killdozer. Uh, You know, a lot of the punk shows uh, were punk shows, but on the the Madison scene, um, you could have a show and have a folk singer and then a punk band and then a country band and then a a heavy metal band all playing, you know, on the same night in the same club, and um, that was cool. It it didn't seem like it was uh, elitist to me, you know. Mm Um, but then you, you would have your proper punk shows where, you, like I said, you go to the Wilmar Center and there'd be like eight bands playing on a Saturday afternoon, you know, starting at 1 and finishing at 8 p.m. or something.
0: Yeah. Well, I think that's what I love so much about, well, Midwest in general, too, like not to generalize everything there, but just the fact that, like, you know, it's not like New York or, or Washington, D.C. or even like, uh, you know, Detroit kind of a little bit where, you know, it's so much more like, oh, hey, this is hardcore and this is punk. Like, it just feels like... You know, as you're saying, there's a lot more that could kind of fall under that umbrella.
1: Yeah, and, you know, that's how I was raised, uh, listening to so many different styles of music that my mom turned me on to. I, I never felt elitist about music. Like, I'm a pop geek. I love anything that's got a hook. And, uh, you know, I, in, in Viroqua, I would hear, like, the polka music from, like, 10 till noon, and then there'd be the farm report on the lo- on the local radio, and then they'd play country music from noon till 3, then there was news and from four to five was a show called mail train where they would play like the top 40 but they would take requests and also read off people's birthdays and stuff and uh, i i just listened to all all kinds of music i actually one of the bands the side bands i had in uh, college was a polka band and oh. uh it was so much fun uh, i, I played drums uh, along with Tom Lavarda on bass and then the guy who played accordion was uh, Cliff Benz his band was Cliff Benz and the Poketeers our theme song was Musica Musica <laughs> <laughs> and uh whenever Cliff called I loved it because I would get 200 bucks cash <laughs> and uh you know if I wasn't working with Spooner or something on a weekend he'd go hey what are you doing next Saturday afternoon we got a, a wedding gig they want and I'd go I'm in man and um uh, I would take my kick, snare, hi-hat, and one cymbal, and then I would take my floor tom, but I would just use it to put my beers on. I basically just play kick, snare, hat, beats, and everything. And every song, every single song, I didn't know them all. I mean, Cliff knew like a thousand songs. Tom Lavard would nod at me one bar out, so we'd go, dun 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 da 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 and we ended every song like that. <laughs> so as soon as he nodded at me, I knew that was the last bar to, to do the ending. It was great. <laughs>
0: Um, so how did Boat Records come together?
1: Boat started uh, primarily from uh, one of the guitarists in uh, in Spooner, Dave Benton, was a huge music fan. He had a huge collection, and he ran Mad City Music, which was a, a you know, you could go in and find a used vinyl and, and, and later CDs and things there, and... Um, and there were always posters up for gigs. It was sort of a place to hang, you know, and, and like a, just a cool record store. And um, we just decided to put to Dave. Kind of decided, why don't we start our own label? We'll just start putting out the Spooner records on that, and then that led to putting out other Madison bands. You know, we released quite a few records on there, and uh, but it was all everybody was involved with the process. You know, we would order a thousand sleeves, and we'd have a party and get some beer and sit around and literally stuff the stuff the uh, sleeves with vinyl and then package them and whatever and put them in a box and send them out to a college radio station and um that's how we operated you know we we it was so diy and so punk rock in a way uh and it was great and uh, and again because it was madison and and there was a very much a sense of community there everybody was into it you know we and we would go somebody would approach us and go hey can we put this out in boat records we go sure you know we we didn't feel again like it was elitist or had to have a certain slant on the sound of the music. You know, it was uh, it was pop music, but there was all sorts of stuff that we put out on boat.
0: Yeah, like I, I think it's such a great label, and as you're saying, like it is a lot of different sort of stuff, like Fun with Adams and Figure Five and and stuff. Um, one not to go with all the F bands on the label, but Firetown. It's like both you and Duke as well. What's the difference between Firetown and Spooner? Obviously, sonically very different bands, but like. Why did you? How did Firetown come together? Because they they do overlap, right?
1: Yeah, and uh, I can I can sort of tell you what happened there. Um, I had met uh, Phil Davis, who played in a band when Spooner started. Uh, the band he was in was called Buzz Gunderson, and they were very popular on the on the local bar circuit. And uh, Phil was also a really good writer. He was one of the critics for Isthmus, which is like the weekly sort of arts newspaper in Madison. And, um, during one of Spooner's sort of hiatuses where we, we'd put a record out and then we did a bunch of shows and we were just kind of on a break. Um, Phil said, Hey, I've got a couple of ideas for a song. You want to record them? I'm like, sure. And so, um, I took, uh, my TAC four track over to, uh, at the time our Spooner's manager, Bob Bartell had a little sort of a rehearsal studio space in his basement. And Phil and I started making these little four track demos and, um, they were really cool sounding. And then I said, why don't we sort of get a band together? And I knew Steve Marker played guitar. So I said, Steve, you want to play um, some guitar on this? And, uh, and then Tom, the bass player in the Tears <laughs> with me, was a really good bass player. And so we asked him to play bass. And we wrote uh, 25 or 30 songs in about two months and recorded them either on my eight, at the eight track, we went into smart, started doing some recording on the eight track, but a lot of it was done on the four track. And, um, do you remember the club I was telling you about Merlin's, um, we became one of the sort of de facto opening bands for a lot of the acts that came through there. We would get a call from Serge, the owner and go, Hey man, the Flame and Groovies are playing, uh, Saturday night. You want to open for 50 bucks? We go, sure. That's and, awesome. And, uh, about once, once a week we were opening for someone there and, um, and we we didn't really tour other than play in the Madison area, and uh, never released. Uh, uh, so so this was called this band was called First Person, and we never released any vinyl. We put a couple cassettes out that we just put in the record store and sold locally, but never never got around to putting a record out. But then Duke um, and Phil got together and started writing some songs and uh, approached me about. Um, recording them on the A-track. So we went into Smart and spent about uh, on and off, you know, maybe three or four months recording the first Firetown record. And uh, it was really crazy. We had a friend of ours, Jeff Schultz, who made a a super cheap video uh, for Carry the Torch. And at the time, MTV had this thing on Sunday nights. I can't remember what it was called, now, Damien. It was like a battle of the bands, but it was videos. And it was all it was all underground they had like 120 minutes where they would play um, you know all these up and coming uh, indie bands but this was like a half hour show where they would feature six kind of undiscovered videos and uh, they put our video on there and uh, MTV played it once and the next day we got calls from Warner Brothers and CBS and uh, you know uh, Electra Records everybody wanted to sign us and uh, we Mm -hmm. ended up getting a deal with uh, Atlantic Records
0: Oh yeah, because you put out a, a couple more records on Atlantic Records, right? Afterwards,
1: yeah. We the first record was uh, re-released. The first record came out on Boat, and then that got re-released on Atlantic. And then uh, we did, you know, some touring. Yeah, um, it, it was tough back then to tour because that was sort of right around the start of like the hair metal bands, <laughs> and. Um, you know we could play sort of the club circuit in the midwest but anytime we try to get a national tour it was really hard uh we did we i remember we opened up uh after that first record we went out with steve earl for a while we played with him and he was great he's just super cool dude we played some shows with marshall crenshaw we played some shows with the replacements i remember we played a handful of shows with bruce hornsby um all as an opening act um uh, and then we went in to make the second record, the second Fire Firetown record, and we went to New York City, and that was a really tough experience. Uh, all of the classic things that happened to a band happened to us. The A&R guy who signed us left for another label. Our management team split up. Um, the head of the label at the time sort of insisted that we work with this uh, uh producer who really was an engineer michael frondelli and and we butted heads i mean michael's a very talented engineer but uh and i got along with him okay but uh, duke and phil just really butted heads with them and uh you know the first first time record cost five thousand dollars and the second one cost four hundred thousand dollars <laughs> oh and uh it, we were in new york for like five months it was uh, painful <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> um, of course, it came out and flopped, too, because like I said, uh, you know, Twisted Sister was the priority, at, or Skid Row, they were the prior, priority at Atlantic Records. Firetown was never going to be the priority there. So, um, But the great thing was when I finished, after five months in New York uh, working on Firetown, I flew home, and the next day I started Killdozer's 12-point buck, and I, I just felt like I'm free.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, it's funny because, like, what you're describing, the world you're describing is the world that Nevermind helps end. Like, so many people come on this podcast, like people from No Effects, people from, like, all sorts of bands, and talk about what touring life was like pre-Nevermind and then what life was like post-Nevermind and just how different the world was for for anyone that wasn't playing, you know, top 40 type music.
1: Well, nobody saw uh, Nevermind coming, and it really did change... The landscape. I mean, it changed my life completely too. The, the success of that record. Um, it's funny in Garbage. Almost all of our crew um, worked in hair metal bands previous. So they, uh, you know, they they go, "Hey man, my name's T. Nice to meet you. I'm kind of pissed at you. You know, you you kind of my you kind of destroyed my band. All well, I mean, I love Garbage. I'm glad to be out working with you. Our, our crew. We've always picked really good people and and, and loved them. Um, but like I said, a lot of them <laughs> lost their jobs when the hair metal. Uh, the rug got pulled out from uh, under the hair metal feet, so to speak, or their boots, whatever. Um, but uh, it, like anything, music goes in circles. You know, alternative music had its heyday in the early '90s, and and then hip hop kind of exploded too. And hip hop is still obviously very um, in everybody's world uh, right now. Um, and but music does keep going in cycles. You know, I have no idea where it's going to go next, but um, I'm always looking and excited to see what's coming around the corner.
0: Well, it's, it's interesting now, like, you know, the, the biggest kind of success, quote unquote, during this uh, weird media period we're in right now has been that Post Malone Nirvana cover set.
1: Which I yeah, loved, right. by the way. I thought he did a great job. I'm a sort of a, a fan of his. I love that song Circles. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if you know the track. It's just really simple. His singing is great. Uh and I was kind of blown away by how good he sounded. You know, I, th- I don't know how many, I think 10 or 15, maybe 20 million people like saw it when it first came yeah. out. It's probably way more than that now because he's a huge pop star. But obviously he he has a passion for that band, you know, and that kind of sound. I, I don't really know his history, but he probably paid, played in a band like that when he first started out, you know, some sort of alternative rock cover band.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Hundred percent. He definitely comes out of like sort of a, a punk rock leaning background. You know, like whatever that modernish when he was younger kind of manifestation of that was. But he reps the band Power Trip. Like a lot of the people, kind of in his crew and stuff, are people that have punk adjacent people as well. So it's it's you know it's a continuum. Yeah. Um, I guess going back though to uh you know um what well, my I hear Circles definitely. I love that song, but my kids are playing that while I'm up here listening to the Mech 7-inch. Um, how did Mech come about, that recording? Because that's like the first outside of your own band recording production stuff you did, right? Or yeah, very, very the,
1: I think the very first sessions that we did at Smart were two punk bands, um, Mech and Tar because so I think the Mech single or EP came out first. Um, mm-hmm. But one of the songs on there, Zombie, is still one of my favorite sessions we ever did at Smart. Um, it's just got this, I don't know if you remember the song, Damien, it goes... I want to be a zombie. I just love that song. And, and they brought in a lot of their punk rock friends and girlfriends and they all sang these, or shouted out these background vocals, like screaming in the background when, you know, they sound like there's bloody murder going on. Um we tried to, to find the master for that for uh the smart studios documentary and for some reason we couldn't track it down you know i, I don't know where you know they they had it somewhere and, and lost it it's kind of a bummer that we couldn't find that because we released some vinyl um after we did the smart studio story and uh, we wanted to include that as one of the tracks on there but somehow the master is is gone but yeah they were a really cool band really fun i think they uh, we recorded it. it's smart, obviously, but I believe that they moved to Minneapolis. They sort of were in the Minneapolis scene for a while.
0: Did they record any other songs during that session? You know, they're on a comp too around then too, right? But yeah, maybe that's I the I, t- I seem
1: to remember there was like a I don't know if it was a album. I think it was like an EP, maybe four or six songs something like that. I can't remember exactly. I'd have to look I, through. I think the it's archives. six songs. Yeah, on the that sounds right
0: seven inch. Yeah. No, no, it's five songs. Sorry, five songs.
1: Five songs, Yep, yeah, that sounds right. I
0: grab the, the 45 off the shelf.
1: And the other band that started right around that same time was Tar Babies. You know, they they came into their first recording there, and I was kind of blown away by them as a band because they were just really good players. I mean, Bucky Pope's an incredible guitar player, but um, mm-hmm. the, Dan and Robin and the rhythm section were really good, and they played sort of... Groovy punk, you know, they could swing and uh, they were sort of the Red Hot Chili Peppers, you know, before anybody knew who the Red Hot Chili Peppers were. And um they, again, very popular on the local scene, but uh, never really made it out of the, the kind of Midwest area, you know.
0: Yeah, they eventually signed to SST even, too, right? I think so, In yeah. Later years yeah. of SST. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe not the best time. Oh, actually, it was the uh, Sonic Youth was putting out records around that time too. So it was maybe just like lost in the shuffle because those early records are awesome. That the first 12 inch that I think did you do the 12 inch tour? Is that after after they moved?
1: No, no, that maybe. yeah we did that too. Yep.
0: Oh, it's awesome. The, those first two Tar Babies records are fantastic. That whole Boner Bone Air Records catalog, the four records, you know, including the first Killdozer, it's like what a run of four fantastic albums.
1: Yeah, and they were doing the same thing that Boat that Bo was doing, you know, just, it's all DIY, man. You're, you're stuffing the sleeves with the vinyl and taking them to the post <clears> office <throat> and, you know, um, very much a labor of love. But they, they were tapped into the local scene in Madison.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, another record I really wanted to ask you about is the Feed Time record that you did. Like, was that something, they they come over for that or did you go over to them?
1: Oh, that was, uh, no, they came to um, uh, Madison, And, I, you know, there were a couple bands from uh, Australia that made it up uh, and recorded smart. And usually um, it had to be coordinated through a tour also. You know, they would come up and play shows and then try to find a slot to come, you know, when they came through the Midwest to record. Um, And they were an awesome band. Um, I don't know how they found out about us, you know. Um, I think probably... um, Again, hearing like the Air records or hearing uh, Killdozer or uh, some of the Touch and Go records I did, you know, maybe they heard those. Because we did a lot of, uh, um, I did a lot of production for Touch and Go, too, for Corey Rusk's label.
0: Oh, yeah. Well, another thing I had to ask you about is the Laughing Hyenas record, which I'm sure was somewhere they probably had heard at that point. But uh, how did... Sorry, <laughs> as you can hear, there's a little bit of an argument going on in the background. That's okay. I'll edit this part out. Um, uh, but uh, sorry, how did how did your connection with Laughing Hyenas come about?
1: That was a call from Corey Rusk, and uh, he said you have to see this band live. They're incredible. And um, the Hyenas came through town and played. I think the club to wash. I can't remember. Um, it was a packed show, and uh, sadly that 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 venue burned down that was a really cool madison venue um and and they were really intense uh, and i i just loved the vibe i thought the rhythm section was incredibly powerful and larissa played primal guitar like i don't think she ever played a solo she might hit a one single note every now and then a song and just let it sustain but basically she just thrashed out chords you know garage rock chords and uh, john was incredibly powerful as a as a frontman, and um so, Corey said, you go check him out. And then we just booked the, the studio and they came in for maybe five or six days and we did the, that first record. And um, we brought in their PA and brought that into the room. And once I had uh, Jim's uh, drum set up and kind of had the overall vibe, you know, we put Larissa in the vocal booth um, because her guitar was so loud. I think she had a twin and just, just put it on 10. And it was like <laughs> the fillings in your teeth would fall out if you got in front of the amp. Um, but once we had them set up, then we brought the PA in, and I would take the signal from the bore that, that I was getting going to tape, and I would also run that back out to the PA, and then so that came into the room too. So it just had the most crazy, intense sound. God, it was killer. <laughs> and you can hear that on the record. It sounds like it's sort of bursting at the seams, you know.
0: Oh, that record's a monster, you know, I just, uh, I love that thing. And actually, I think, you know, it, it was reissued, right, recently?
1: Yeah, I did an a, a interview last year, too. I think there's a book that came out on them, or oral history or something that came out, and uh, yeah, but all the stuff's been reissued, and yeah, those records sound great.
0: Oh, yeah, that record in particular is just such a, well, like, such a visceral band. Like, I'm a huge Negative Approach fan. Had you heard of Negative Approach before being introduced to Laughing Ienas?
1: I had, but I, I'd never seen them live. You know, I, I'd heard mm-hmm. a couple. I think Corey Russ sent me some of their tracks, you know, when, just to get my head around what they were going to do. But I never got to yeah. see them live.
0: He, John's got to be one of the the greatest vocals vocalists of that style ever, like, or if not the greatest vocalist of that style ever.
1: Yeah, he was. He just had an incredible dynamic and uh, very primal. You know, and mm-hmm. uh, like I said, they were. They were so intense live. I think they would just blow people's heads off. If you had no idea what what they were like, you know, when they would take the stage, you go, "Oh, they." Especially Larissa looked sort of unassuming, you know, and then they would just kick into a song, and it had these jungle tribal rhythms and just searing guitar, and and, uh, and John's singing is over the top, and uh, yeah, they were they were a force to be reckoned with.
0: Yeah, definitely, and he's also one of the few vocalists where I think. Uh you know, like like almost like a Frank Sinatra type thing where he gets more control over his voice as time goes on. Like so many aggressive vocalists end up losing their edge, but it's something where he's, you know, like he's he's more in control of his, his instrument in Laughing ienas than he was in Negative Approach.
1: Yeah, and he could croon if he wanted to. You know, every now and then a song, that's another thing I liked about the band. They had these dynamics where they would just ease up a little bit and then they would kick back in and and that could happen from Larissa just sort of laying off the guitar or John... Crooning, you know, momentarily before he before the band kicked back in, and so, so they they were really good at, dy- at controlling those dynamics too. It's
0: funny because like later on, it becomes co- sort of codified as the grunge sound, but like so much of that sound is is really like a Midwest sound between killdozer and and Laughing Hyenas, and you know like it and obviously your work, <laughs> um it feels like there's just like that sort of like it sounds that's more grunge sounding than you know a Soundgarden or, or an Allison Chains are to me.
1: Oh totally, yeah. Yeah, they you know, um, to me I could hear a little Stooges or MC5 in their music, and I th- you know I th- guess they were from Detroit, right? I'm I'm mm-hmm. pretty sure they were from the Detroit area. Last time I saw John too, he was in Garbage's on tour in, in Detroit and and ran into him at one of the, at the venue we were playing. I don't remember where it was, but and he seemed in pretty good form. Um, but I I think they pulled in some of that. That was one of the influences in their sound, definitely uh the Stooges and MC5
0: so i guess go um you know and by the way butch this has been incredible and would you come back for a part two at some point in the of future? course
1: yeah this is fun damien I'm, i know it's going painfully slowly
0: and i'm just going record by record at this point but it's only when i went through uh you know your your production work the whole way through and saw it on mass that i realized this, oh my gosh there's so many records that you you worked on that i just had no idea like i'm just in love with this record and just neglected to check the credits. I'm sorry about that. Oh, um, no worries, now man. I will. <laughs> but going... <laughs> uh, one band I had to ask you about, because I've, I've been a fan of this random find from years ago, is the Swamp Thing band, or the Swamp Thing album that you did.
1: Oh, man, they were a band? super cool band. I'd, yeah, they, they were great. Uh, they sort of had a... I don't even know how to describe it, like a punk folk vibe. Um, I could hear a little bit of the Violent Femmes sort of in some of their... Mm-hmm. Some of their songs uh um they they we did a record and they were really hooky songs they they got very popular on the on the Madison sort of midwest circuit at the time and um one of the guys bob and uh and their manager went to uh new you know when the band sort of ran its course they moved to New York and started the knitting factory, which became a very successful wow. alternative music club there for many many years. And in fact, I remember this is a little a little side note. Um, when we went out, uh, when Firetown went out to record our second record in New York, we drove. You know, we rented a, a U-Haul and drove all our gear out. And uh, I got a call from Bob. I think Bob Appella was his last name. And he said, "Hey Butch, if you bring out like forty or fifty cases of Line and Coogles beer, I'll give you like ten dollars a case on top of what you pay for it." <laughs> And we're like, really? Okay. And w- plus, we were going to bring some of our beer anyway because we knew New York was going to be expensive, so we just, just we just went and bought a shitload of beer. Because he could, it was, uh, Line of Coolness was deemed exotic in New York, and they would sell it for like 6 you know, I don't remember what it was, but they, you know, it was dirt cheap in Wisconsin, and uh, it was like a a premium beer in New York City. So uh, whatever they bought for me, they just marked it up and they sold all of it. So we, we ended up going out with the, uh, uh, as I remember, with all our gear plus fifty cases of line and kugels, and I think maybe uh, you know maybe ten cases of old style <laughs> being being you know proper Wisconsinites, uh, we had to make sure we had enough beer for the trip
0: <laughs> um I guess going uh you know uh back that also would probably help chip away at that uh, you know four hundred thousand dollar recording budget
1: well, the money was spent on uh Studios, um, you know, we we recorded that at uh, Media Sound, an incredibly super cool studio in uh, I think it was like 57th and 8th in Manhattan, and uh, Guns N' Roses had just been in Studio B, and uh, mixing their their. You know the the massive record that came out uh, the, uh use your illusion now, what was the first record? I don't even remember what the title After was. Type for destruction yes that they they had, they had just finished that record. the studio apparently was <laughs> destroyed. They had to put in all new couches and furniture and um and uh when we went in and started tracking in Studio A, which was the big tracking room upstairs, Lou Reed was downstairs also uh, recording um his record New York, I think at the time, and uh he was not very friendly. Um, I mean, he just, he wouldn't, he wouldn't acknowledge us at all. The funny thing is there was a fire one day. I remember this, uh, the assistant engineer came running in and said, oh my God, there's a, there's a subway fire right underneath us. We got to get the master tapes out. And now we're like, what? And we stopped recording and, and grabbed all the multi track tapes. And there were, you know, there were a bunch of big uh, reels two inch reels. And, uh, Carried them all out in the street on the curb and just sat out there. And then Lou came running out a few minutes later, and he had him his, his assistant engineer. They had their tapes, too, because no one knew was it was, was going to come up into the building or exactly where, where the fire was. And so we're, stand, we're sitting there with our tapes, uh, just sitting there. You know, it was for hours. We were out on the sidewalk. And Lou, after about 45 minutes, was, I'm out of here. And, and he went to get a cab at the corner, and these two hippie girls walked by. And they, were, they, were, they looked at him and went, standing on a corner suitcase in my hand whatever. i started singing uh, sweet jane <laughs> and lou got really annoyed and just like <laughs> gave him the finger and glowered at him then jumped into a cab and took off and we, we thought it was hysterical
0: see when i was talking off the top about how lucky i was to meet you early on because it could have gone the other way with some of these other musicians i could have run into
1: yeah, well, like I said, you know, I, I like people in general and like to talk to people. Lou was, you know, I think he was a bit of a grumpmeister, you know.
0: Yeah, he's got he's got a bit of a reputation for that. Um, I, Another band that I have to ask you about, because uh, I can only imagine what this recording session was like, but what was it like working with the Cosmic Psychos?
1: Uh, working with the Cosmic Psychos was so much fun. I mean, they were <laughs> crazy and... Uh, <laughs> you know i knew of a couple of their uh releases that had come out and they, they they did the same thing they came over and they did a bunch of shows on the east coast and some in the midwest and the west coast so they scheduled like a week to record um you know between the shows and um like a lot of uh sessions back then i you know i there was no pre-production or anything i never got any demos or anything they just showed up and we started recording but we just hit it off uh, they they're really super cool fun guys you know i i i've kept in touch of them over the years i don't know if you damien if you saw the documentary in the cosmic psychos that came out um a couple years ago it's great
0: that was and, fantastic absolutely yeah,
1: I, I like it when uh at one point they ask ross like what do you what do you uh, you know what do you think about being in the band he goes what do i know i'm just a fucking farmer. <laughs> i can't I, I don't have his accent right there but oh my god it's so <laughs> funny we had such a blast making that record and they stayed at the studio you know it's like they were they were pinching pennies so i'm like well you guys can just crash here and i don't think they slept the whole time plus they tried to beat killdozers record for the most beer drank in a week you know i i, th- I want to say they went through about 23 cases in like six days or something and um it was a lot of beer that was consumed uh, but we, we had so much uh, fun making that record and and uh, at the end of it uh we made that really silly video for a dead rue um my, a fr- friend of mine who's a filmmaker frank anderson called and said hey i've got this crew we we shot a we had a crew for a couple of days and we shot a a commercial but everyone's just sitting around doing nothing and and he said what are you working on i said i'm working with this band cosmic psychos i got this they've got this great song dead rule you want to do a video and and so the next day we just shot a a video like just you know, we went to a bowling alley and, yeah, it's just really silly um, but it was fun it, it was a blast to uh, to work with them
0: oh my god yeah like one of the wildest bands ever I've hung out with a couple of them when I've been in Australia just meeting them in passing but a band I never got to see live but a band that I'm sure really enjoyed that cheap Wisconsin beer as you're saying
1: yeah and Billy uh, ran a successful club uh, in Melbourne I think um, yep. Cherry Bomb so am I correct on that? And, yeah uh,
0: we played it on that tour with you guys
1: yeah yeah and he's he's also he's been a dj and stuff and uh, he's still you know involved in music um sadly Robbie uh you know we lost Robbie the guitarist he was such a great guitar player and just the sweetest nicest guy and uh you know that's just one of those that's a sad sad part to or a sad aspect of uh the cosmic psychos that he's no longer with us
0: hmm absolutely. Um, I, I guess another song, actually not even a record this time. Yeah. More of a song that I have to ask you about is the song genetic on that Sonic youth did. It's like a B side, um, off (laughs) Dirty. This is the most obscure shit possible. So if you don't remember any of this stuff, we can just move on. But I think that's one of the greatest songs ever. It's a Lee Ronaldo song.
1: Yeah. I know the song. Yep. Oh my God.
0: What a perfect song. And like, there's just so many cool production things on it. Um, you know, like just guitar phasings and things like that. Um, Yeah, like I just, any memories of that song or thoughts on that song?
1: Well, Sonic Youth were amazing to work with. Uh, They had a a truly unique sound and a sensibility in terms of how they approached writing and recording and performing. And um, when I went into Make Dirty, this is also a a little interesting anecdote that circles back here. I I was mildly intimidated by. I'd seen him play live before and I just got this uh, thing in my head oh they're very cerebral and very arty and and uh, and the, the, the first time I flew to New York I went to meet them and I I went to Kim and Thurston's apartment and I walked in and and Thurston said hey Butch we want our record to sound like this and he blasted Zombie by Mecht <laughs> I gonna... and I just burst out laughing and he's he chatted on Stunbomb he goes we want to sound just like this I'm going okay it was really funny and very disarming, you know, they, and they, he was, Thurston could be sort of a goofball sometimes. Um, but I, but I, I just, I fell in love with him as a band. And, um, um, I don't remember everything specifically about that song, but I remember, uh, you know, both, uh, Lee and Thurston were really into getting, uh, crazy guitar sounds. Lee used more pedals, um, than Thurston. Thurston did a lot of it just sort of like scraping the strings and, and letting things drone and just sort of the the unique way that he tuned his guitars but then all of them tuned the guitars including the bass in really bizarre um bizarre tunings i, I remember they when they brought in um a couple of the guitar racks all their guitars at the first day in the studio and i'd look in the back neck and the first guitar would say f sharp f sharp f sharp g f sharp b b and i'd pick it up and strum it <laughs> and go yep that is one weird ass tuning and every every guitar, you know, they they that's what they did. They would just write on the back of the guitar what the tuning was. And uh, you know, I think that's one of the reasons that their sound has such a, a symphonic quality to it. Is uh, there was a lot and a lot of dissonance in the chords that they played, and that just made it sound really rich and full.
0: Hmm. Um. And I promise, last one before I let you go back on with your life, so you don't have to subject yourself to this anymore. But, uh, fluid that fluid record that you did. Uh, fantastic band um and also it just feels like you know the the frantics the pre-fluid band would have been so at home in madison with the bonaire records scene
1: totally and uh that was uh, a, a call from jonathan at Sub Pop who said you got to check out this band the fluid also somewhat influenced by uh, the mc5 and the stooges and uh i they they came and recorded in madison they played a show there and um I thought John was a star. I mean, he was just so charismatic on Stay the Singer, um, just incredible. And uh, Rhea Garrett, I think Garrett was on drums. He was also a real powerhouse. But they had a super cool vibe. And I thought they were destined to um, jump to a major label. You know, I really did. I thought that they had the the charisma and the the sound. And uh, I guess, I think they were from Denver. And I remember after we put that EP out, and they went out on tour and stuff. But I think uh, I could sense that there maybe was a little bit of friction already going on with some of the members of the band in the studio. I don't remember exactly what happened now, but, um, sadly they, you know, they didn't, um, uh, they never got signed to a major, but I I think that they would have been a, a, a powerful, powerful band. And, uh, if they'd stuck around and had a shot to get a a wider audience.
0: Oh, absolutely. I think though, all the records are under, are completely underrated because as you're saying, they've just got that power and it's, it's something weird about that sort of Boulder-Denver scene where there's a lot of really interesting bands that were, once again, like, in the same sort of way with Madison, it was doing different things, but everyone was just kind of on, like, a, a real interesting tip.
1: Yeah, and, uh, you know, they, again, they, we the first EP or the EP I did, I think, was on sub-pop, right? And um, mm-hmm. I loved... Uh, Sub Pop. I was I was part of the uh, Sub Pop Singles Club. I don't know if you ever knew about that.
0: <laughs> oh, absolutely.
1: And it, it was cool because Sub Pop also did not adhere to any particular style. I mean, they basically, I guess, they like rock and roll, you know. Um, but you had sort of grungy bands like nirvana or uh, mud honey but then they they, they would ha- have more traditional sort of rock bands and they evolved into having if you listen to sub-pop now they have hip-hop bands and folk artists and psychedelic rock and and whatever and but they were that way somewhat back then and, and really i think it came down to um uh, that jonathan and bruce it was just their taste you know what they liked in in uh Music and so that's why I, I thought Sub Pop was like probably probably the preeminent indie label at the time because I just thought that both those guys had really good taste in the acts that they signed.
0: Um, are there any bands that you wish you had a chance with to work with? Like, were there any bands that at the time you're like, oh, if I got my hands on them?
1: Hmm, that's a good question. Uh, I don't know. I'd have to think about. It. I. I mean. Um, I can't really, you know, I can't think off the top of my head, Damien. I'm sure there were. I was probably like, oh man, I'd love to work with these guys. But at the time, when you're in the thick of uh, doing that kind of stuff, it's. I, I never, I never really drew up a wish list. I guess I just, I was in, I was just basically in the moment.
0: I would have loved to have heard a Butch Vig Wipers record. You know, like that. I think would have been an unbelievable. Oh, that,
1: yeah, that would be cool. I'm, I'm a huge Wipers fan. That would have been very cool. Yeah, well, now I'm just going into fantasy baseball territory. So, Butch,
0: I can't thank you enough for doing this.
1: Well, Damian, thanks, man. Maybe we can do a round two. Uh, you know, uh, uh, it's like I've got time on my hands. I'm just when I'm done here to do. I'm just going to jump back into uh, uh, trying to work on some of the garbage tracks today. But maybe we could do this again in a couple of weeks or whenever you have time to do it, and we could do volume two. Oh, my gosh, I'd love that because, believe me, I got a lot more specific
0: questions about a lot more very specific songs and records to punish you with. So uh, (laughs) in the the near future, my friend.
1: Right on. Well, thanks so much, Damien, and uh, be safe and stay sane, okay?
0: Thank you, Butch, for coming on the show. And you heard right there, Butch will be back for a part two at some point in the future because there's a lot more to discuss. You know, there's a lot more... Midwest punk and hardcore to talk to them about, a lot more grunge, a lot more, yeah, just, just nerdy shit, just nerdy shit, speaking of nerdy shit, next week on the show, we get nerdy with a friend of mine, and one of the best front people in all of music, Jenny Beth, she has a brand new solo record, which is pretty fantastic, called To Love Is To Live, and, uh, yeah, this is a really fun conversation, I'm stoked for you to hear it, and, uh, yeah, one of the best front people. One of the best front people. Oh, oh. All right, well, that's it for this week on this show. Until next week, remember, as always, black lives matter. The lives of indigenous people matter. Go out there. Get involved. Uh, find out what's going on. Uh, you know, sign whatever you can sign. Lend your support however you can lend your support, be it financially, be it, you know, in, in some sort of auxiliary capacity. Get involved. Fuck fascism. You know, fuck Nazis. Fuck, fuck that shit. Fuck it all, fuck it, stuff sucks, uh, and that's it. Go up there and make your own culture. Anyone can do this shit. Start a podcast. Start a start a webzine. You know, it'd be cool. It'd be cool to, uh, you know, see some some cool stuff coming out. You know, you know, just we got we got time on our hands now. You know, everyone wants content. Make some content. You know, you don't have to even share it with the world. Just make something. You know, just make it. It'll help you feel better. Trust me. Sign your organ donor cards because you don't need those organs by the time they come looking for them. You know, they're not going to come to you when you're using them. They're going to come to you when they can save someone else's life. And that's it. Uh, Yeah, I love you. Stay safe, wear a mask, and I will see you next week on this show. Okay, now I realize I kept saying next week on the show, and it'll probably be out before next week, but uh, no one's listening anymore, so I'm pretty much just talking to myself. All right. Bye, Damien.